how do you talk to people effectively about climate change? Well, you listen and you listen to what they're observing and what they're seeing in their communities. And you listen to what their concerns are and the fears of loss of freedom and the fears of loss of comfort and loss of just kind of autonomy and rhythm you know, over one's own rhythm are very real. Welcome to Climate Conversations. I'm Rajesh Kasurangan, and I'm going to be fighting gridlock with my partner in crime. Hi, Kurt Newton. And we're going to be doing that with Jason Jay, lecturer in the Sloan School of Management and head of the Sustainability Initiative at MIT. Jason. Good morning. How did you get into the sustainability business? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I I can't sort of start a conversation about this without, you know, the fact that I was born in Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a town where you're considered a wacko if you're not an environmentalist of some kind. <laughs> and, you know, you, you get to fall in love with nature. It's just part of growing up there. And so that was an entry point for me. And And not only do you fall in love with nature in Boulder, but you can look out just beyond the boundaries of town, at least, you know, when I was growing up and see this kind of brown cloud growing over Denver, which at the time, you know, I have to go back and look at these statistics, but my understanding was that it was one of the most polluted cities in North America. There was kind of a ring ring of refineries around the city and some sprawl and traffic and so on. Um, And so I, we would have, my dad and I would have conversations about things that I didn't know what they were. They just kind of planted a seed. He was talking about cap and trade policies. He was talking about pollution control technologies. And I didn't really know what he was talking about, but you know, it sort of planted a seed for a lot of the things that we're talking about now. That's the sense I've got when I talk to my kids about cap and trade policies. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? Yeah. So, you know, and my my mom, you know, she she also was very passionate about these issues. Um, she had a, an activist streak. There was a nuclear weapons facility in Golden, Colorado, not far from us, and she was part of a, a group of people who you know went and laid down in the road. And those were some early seeds that got planted. Then when I was in high school and college in those sort of early parts of defining what you're about, I was really interested in the mind. You know, the, coming into college in 1995, you know, the decade of the brain, right. it was a really exciting time to be working in cognitive neuroscience, thinking about evolutionary psychology. And that had defined a whole aspect of my path was to think about how do people think and how do we learn how do adults learn and develop? How do organizations learn and develop? That really is what led me to uh, you know, MIT. But there was a certain point where I started asking myself, okay, well, what are we learning about, right? What if we're, let's say we wanna create organizational learning like Peter Senge at, at MIT Sloan. You know, what is that learning heading towards? And what problem are we trying to solve? And that, when I really thought about that question, I think that's when that seed that had been planted really started to grow is to say, okay, well, what we really need to learn how to do is how to create a post-industrial civilization that can meet basic human needs around the world while containing the negative impacts on climate change, on nitrogen and phosphorus overload mm-hmm. on air pollution on all these issues that are that seem to be you know the sort of diseases of affluence and that really has guided a lot of our my work and our work and the sustainability initiative right is how can we create new kinds of organizations new organizational cultures new market mechanisms that support new technologies that allow for kind of a, a sustainable society so given what you've the way you've described what your mom was doing, what your dad was doing, you you kind of grew up in the middle of this tension 
<laughs> or overlap between, say, the, the activist streak and the market forces streak? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that, you know, the market thing wins out because, I mean, the, the, the thing that there two of them were doing together professionally was building a business. And yeah. and I was, you know, child labor in the factory assembling wheelchair cushions. And my brother was the, you know, ended up being the head of marketing. And we, we built the business that was around a, a wheelchair cushion that my father invented that prevents pressure sores. And so the notion that you could build a business that does good in the world and that creates a healthy living and, you know, that that was that was probably the most important message that came out of their work for me. And again, that that also steers this. Now, you know, at the same time, you know, being passionate about about issues and being willing to take a stand and looking to kind of bigger systemic changes. I mean, all of those things I think are are part of the picture. Talking about business, I would say that one of the really kind of red button issues for us at Climate Conversations, but I think generally in the climate movement, is what's the role of the market and business in general, right? Because there are people who I think justifiably say capitalism is the problem. It's, mm-hmm. it's not It's not part of the solution. It needs to go away. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are clearly thinking about market-based solutions. Mm-hmm. So how do you think about it, and what's your argument for it? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of, you know, more conservative-leaning economic and political thinkers, you know, like to talk about, you know, Milton Friedman saying, you know, that the purpose of the corporation is to produce profits. Mm -hmm. But he also was a very active proponent of Peguvian taxation and other corrections to externalities and public goods and other market failures. So I think any thoughtful economist that I've ever run into have said, yeah, the market can solve any problem as long as you correct market failures in the form of saying, okay, what are the, you know, are there sort of side costs to our activities? You know, if I'm running a factory, maybe I'm creating economic value through the widgets that I'm producing, but if I'm also polluting a river, that's a negative externality. And so the market unchecked will not solve that problem. You admit, at the minimum, you need property rights which is what an economist named Ronald Close said, so that the farmer downstream who needs that water has the ability to sue the factory for reparations. And ideally, you want to create some sort of a regime where you can put a price, an economic price, on the costs that society is bearing for your activities. And it was under Republican regimes that we created some of the basic infrastructure for doing that. Um, You know, the the cap and trade regimes for uh, sulfur oxides and nitrogen oxides both happened under you know the Reagan and Bush administration yeah, and they were successful and they've been su- very successful you know my kids don't learn about acid rain right that's a problem that we don't talk a whole lot about it's it's a real problem in emerging markets that haven't put those sorts of mechanisms in place but here in the US that you know we we were able to counter that reasonably well with these sorts of approaches so i think i am a a proponent of capitalism there's a book called conscious capitalism that was co-written by a guy named Raj Sodia and a guy named John Mackey and Mackey was the CEO of Whole Foods for a long time and Mackey's a libertarian so he has a bit of an agenda to say, well, if companies can be really great and responsible, then maybe we don't need that government stuff. And his co-CEO of Whole Foods for many years was more of a, a, what we think of as a liberal, mm-hmm. and the two of them would sort of hash that out. But one of the things that they do in that book is they talk about kind of the heroic 
value of capitalism, right, which is this is about a relationship with a customer that's really trying to understand their needs, really trying to understand what's going to make their life better and trying to provide a product or service that does that. And I think there's something very noble in that. You just have to be conscious of in that transaction, is there something happening out the back door or out my smokestack that I'm not managing well? And can we create some market-based policies that allow us to handle that. I don't think that's too big of a stretch, and it's part of what can allow a sustainable capitalism to happen. And perhaps it's it's being a little too blunt to just say it's either capitalism or something not, and there's all kinds of stuff in the middle, all kinds of Well, there are a lot of capitalisms, okay? I mean, mean, capitalism as it's practiced in Sweden or Finland or even Switzerland— or you know, Holland is very different than the capitalism that we practice here. Is very different than the capitalism that we practice in India. So I think that it's not you know I, maybe the Soviet era left some sort of uh, uh, feeling like we had to choose between two very extreme regimes. But you know I think there's a few things that we can do to to kind of make this system work. I think the biggest, most fundamental systemic challenges with capitalism have to do with the role that accumulation of wealth plays in the accumulation of political power. So when incumbent companies with incumbent technologies create an incumbent sort of wealthy class of people who are then able to influence the political process through campaign donations and so on, and therefore create policy regimes that protect they're in those incumbent companies and those incumbent technologies or ward off policies that might threaten them, that's where we run into a challenge. That's where, that's where you know, capitalism in that form of sort of crony capitalism becomes a real issue. And what I think is really interesting right now in our political moment is that this notion of crony capitalism is, is equally hated on multiple sides of the political spectrum. But coming to the fossil fuel industry in particular, mm-hmm where you could argue that you know, some of its power is tied to its proximity to the political class, mm-hmm. right? And and its capacity to buy influence. Mm-hmm. But I would think that it actually goes deeper, right? Because you could say that the foundations of American power in particular are tied to the fossil fuel industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why the Gulf is of such enormous geopolitical interest to this country. Mm-hmm. So h- how do you disentangle that mess? <laughs> <laughs> okay, these are big questions. Uh, I, and, and, and questions which I'm really not th- that sort of well-equipped to, to, to deal with. Okay, uh-huh. so, so I, I don't want to overstep my bounds in terms of the things that I know about. Uh-huh. I would say that this notion of incumbent technologies having incumbent political interests, which escalates to sort of incumbent, you know, sort of geopolitical interests, right, and military interests is very real. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's not trivial for us to shift from a fossil regime to whatever a sustainable regime is going to look like. Right. I will say that, you know, there's a few different directions that we could go with this. One is that MIT has a very robust relationship with the military and with the military industrial complex. It was one of the things that was a big surprise to me when I started teaching here, how many veterans come to Sloan for their MBAs Uh post-service. And it was an even bigger surprise how those became my favorite students. 
because the people coming from the military are cert- deeply service oriented. They're very disciplined. They're interested in managing people. And they've had exposure to some big geopolitical challenges and been on the literally the front lines of that. And they've seen their friends be killed in fuel convoys, right? And so they are very acutely aware of the need to transition our energy system and to transition our geopolitical interests as a result. And I think the whole sort of security establishment has very much come to understand this from a few different angles. One is sort of dependence on oil and and, and how what the ties that creates. And the other is climate change as a threat multiplier. One of our donors, Michael Sonnenfeld, was a, a producer on a film called The Age of Consequences mm-hmm. that um, was a great articulation, kind of terrifying, of the interplay between na- national security, international security issues on the one hand and climate change on the other. So I think the whole kind of that whole world and we've had funding from Lockheed Martin. It's that's firmly part of that military industrial complex. And they're they're very much thinking about trying, you know, they've helped to develop some of the technologies and services to build up the military industrial complex as it is. And they're thinking about new technologies that could help us move to a new regime. So, you know, I see a lot of possibilities in unusual allies across these various lines. The other thing that you mentioned was about fossil fuel companies and their sort of, you know, their role in anchoring some of this. And again, just like there are multiple capitalisms, Mm -hmm. there are multiple different kinds of fossil fuel companies. I mean, we're seeing some firms like Total and Shell really thinking hard and working hard and investing in ways to try to transform themselves into energy companies, diversified energy companies, at minimum with you know, kind of a bigger natural gas portfolio than an oil portfolio, and 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 in some cases putting you know some decent money into renewables as well. Some are you know Shell is even in making noises about being a utility of some kind in the electric in the electricity space. You know, when companies like Volvo are saying they're going to have an all electric fleet, mm-hmm. you better be thinking about a transition in your business model. Right. And then on the other hand, you're going to have companies that are you know firmly in sort of the coal mining to power plant kind of supply chain who are just threatened by all of this. And, you know, maybe they can diversify away from that. Maybe they can't. And what role are they trying to exercise in the political process? You know, I don't think we, unfortunately, after Citizens United, we, sometimes we don't know. But I think that's that's very real. So I think that's, that's the you know, to come back to your big picture theme about capitalism, I think the corrective we need is, is, this, is somehow this role of, of money in politics. Yeah. And you've also started to tee up another of the big themes we wanted to speak with you about, which mm-hmm. is how to have these difficult conversations mm-hmm. with people who don't necessarily agree with you. To okay. Find that, that's something ground. that I, I yeah. might actually know a little bit yeah. about. So yeah. I'm much more comfortable than sort of, you know, my, my political and philosophical speculations here. Yeah. Let the record show. Jason yeah. looks a little happier now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a topic that, I, that I'm very curious about and have been working on for the past five or six years with my co-author and colleague, Gabriel Grant. You can think about the conversations as being at multiple levels. So there's the most intimate conversations that happen, you know, around the Thanksgiving dinner table or usually not at the table, but maybe alongside or after, you know, a few glasses of wine afterwards. And you don't want to just, you know, spoil the dinner. And you don't want to spoil, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and sort of, you know, the fact that people might be in the same family, might be in the same neighborhood, the same community, the same organization, but have different political views and different views on these particular issues around climate change and sustainability. So there's sort of that kind of conversation. And in some of those situations, 
the challenge is I really don't think this is an issue. I think this is a hoax versus, you know, I do think this is an issue and I'm devoting my life to it. That's a very tough kind of conversation. There's another kind of conversation, which is I'm a passionate sustainability advocate inside a company and I want to get my company to invest in, you know, 100% renewable energy for our data centers or going carbon neutral through some sort of an offset program or something that I think could help. And I've got to go talk to my CFO about devoting resources in that direction. Or I want to drive more climate-friendly practices across my supply chain, and I've got to go talk to my suppliers about that. And that person may not think that climate change is a hoax, but they may have a priority list that's 50 items long, and climate change is number 48. And so in that kind of conversation, you know, I, I want to be able to kind of elevate the importance of that issue so that maybe we can get some action on it. But that, that is also another kind of conversation where people get stuck. And then there are some, you know, bigger conversations that happen between people about, you know, what is the right policy, you know, within the Massachusetts State House and Senate right now, there's debates about how to tackle climate change and whether we need a carbon tax in Massachusetts and things like that. And those are conversations, you know, between staffers, between politicians, with politicians and their constituents. All of these are conversations that can go off the rails very easily. And they can go off the rails in a few different f- ways. One is that people just kind of yell their favorite facts at each other and then walk away feeling like the other person really didn't get it and nobody makes any progress. And that's one kind of stuck. The other kind of stuck is that people just avoid the conversations entirely. I mean, if you just think for a moment, if you just kind of become mindful over the course of a week or a month, And notice all the times in your life where some thought came to your mind. You know, maybe you're at a restaurant and you're you're thinking about ordering fish and you don't know where it's sourced from, but you don't ask the waiter or waitress about it for whatever reason, right? I mean, there are so many avoided conversations. And I would argue that that's another form of getting stuck because we, we feel this agitation, like there's a big issue we care about and we really like to see movement on it. But we, in a sense, we don't want to be that person who's just like constantly slamming their heads against the wall on, on, on an issue. And once one conversation goes off the rails, then our tendency might be to avoid them entirely. So that question about how we get stuck has become a very interesting one to me. You know, we called our book Breaking Through Gridlock, The Power of Conversation in a Polarized World. When we talk about breaking through gridlock, the, you know, that word sometimes make people think about Congress or some big political thing that's happening. But that, that metaphor is just to kind of capture this feeling of being stuck and having an issue that you care about and either trying to move forward on it but having the conversation go badly or avoiding it entirely and then just sort of feeling stuck in your own head. And this notion of the power of conversation in a polarized world is that, you know, if you engage in conversation and if you can figure out a way to do that authentically, meaning as a connection between two people and effectively where you are, you're engaging in a dialogue that can generate new ideas instead of just generating conflict, that it it is actually possible to transform these things and move forward. Yeah. I've read through the book. I've heard you speak on it a couple of times. It's a really interesting work. And you know, my big takeaway for me personally is to watch out for how good it feels to be right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how good it is to feel safe. And between those two things, yes, it becomes really hard to have the kind of authentic connection as, as you're speaking of, so that you know people who are coming from a different place can can engage in it. You know, yep. I think it's a it's a really it's a really clear framing. Uh, I appreciate what you've done with it. Oh, no, thank you. I think if you think about this notion of getting stuck. 
one way that we can think about that is that there's a barrier in front of us. Someone, this person is my barrier and I just have to get through them or get around them or they're sort of putting something in my way. And what we invite people to do is to think of this as in a slightly different way, to think about the getting stuck as being you're, you have fallen into a trap. And you've fallen into that trap or you've been caught in that trap because you're attached to some bait in that trap, something that you want that is keeping you stuck. And that's this feeling of getting to be right, getting to feel righteous, getting to feel certain, and and getting to stay safe in your own views and with, you know, sort of preaching to the choir of people who are connected to you. And that's, in, in a way, the hardest part about this is that the power of conversation is first the conversation with yourself, where you are reflecting on what am I really trying to accomplish here? Am I trying to score points? Am I trying to look good in front of my fellow activists who are sort of in the background watching me, you know, fight the power? Am I, you know, trying to just justify my own views and the views of my tri- my tribe, right, kind of the people that agree with me? Am I trying to just kind of stay safe and avoid conflict, avoid that discomfort of confronting somebody or being confronted with a different set of views? And if you want right, righteous, certain, and safe more then you want to be effective, then you're going to stay stuck. And that's a that's a tricky reflection process to do. It's, you know, we, we've tried to provide some tools for doing that. Yeah. Do you have a perhaps a favorite example of somebody who's doing climate-related work who's created an unstuckness? That's a great question. I'm a big fan of Catherine Hayhoe. She's an evangelical Christian who's also a climate scientist. And so in a way... What matters there is who the messenger is, right? It's not a secular atheist liberal from the Northeast to sort of going and preaching on climate change. It's somebody who shares a belief system that's deeply loved and held by people in our country who have been conscripted by a sort of cluster of conservative uh, political views. And she's sort of saying, yeah, there are some of those things that we're going to agree on, but climate change shouldn't be one of them because God created this kind of commandment to be stewards of the earth and to stewards of creation and that our responsibilities around climate change are part of that. And so she, I think she's an important sort of bridge builder between these different communities, but it's not just that. Yeah, because she's she's a trusted member of the community that she's trying to reach. Right? Yeah, she's so a trusted member of the community, yeah. the community. And so that matters, right? So so having relatedness matters, right? You can't just sort of go storming in somewhere where you have no shared context with people and expect them to go along with your agenda or to take on your views. And this is, this is one of the insights from our work is that people break through gridlock when they talk to the people that matter to them about the issues that matter. They talk to people who they have, you know, some shared context with, right? I mean, I have cousins who, you know, grew up in conservative communities, going to evangelical churches twice a week, and who are now in, you know, states that have been consistently red states. And I could choose to just avoid that conversation entirely. But we have a shared context, right, which is that we're part of the same extended family. You know, when I called my cousin to talk about the election last year, you know, we spent the first good chunk of time just talking about our kids and finding out what's going on in each other's families. We spent the next chunk of time talking about the fact that our grandmother had recently passed away and how could we keep the family connected to each other without that sort of common anchor. And then we talked about how we could keep our country together 
without a sort of common anchor of shared views or shared reality. And we compared notes about what news sources we were each reading and what we were gleaning from those things. And we debated some of the issues around immigration and and climate, but we did it from this place of a shared context. And I think that's what's really important about Catherine Hayo's work is that what she's doing is that she has shared context with her fellow evangelicals, that they they share a belief and love for God, and they, they're coming at this issue from different places, but, you know, she seems to be able to get through. But it's not just that. It's not just sort of the structural position or this one shared sort of set of beliefs. It's also that she has a very compassionate way of approaching things. And she's talked about this. You know, how do you do this effectively? How do you talk to people effectively about climate change? Well, you listen and you listen to what they're observing and what they're seeing in their communities. And you listen to what their concerns are and why the climate solutions that they understand might be scary. Right. I mean, you know, one of the things that I think has been really important to understand is that we had a whole conversation here about capitalism and market-friendly policies and so on, but that gets really wonky really fast. At the end of the day, the way that occurs to people is the government is going to come tell me not to drive my car or the government's going to come take a bunch of money out of my pocketbook for driving my car and I need my car to get around. And so I think you have to really get present to that with people and understand that you know, the fears of government overreach and the fears of loss of freedom and the fears of loss of comfort and loss of just kind of autonomy and rhythm, you know, over one's own rhythm are very real. And in fact, I share them, right? So just like, you know, Catherine Hayo may share Christian beliefs with other, you know, Christians, you know, I, I like to live very autonomously and freely and kind of do what I want. I don't want the government telling me what to do. So I can get into that with my you know, friends who are kind of more libertarian leaning. And at the same time, I also really care deeply about what's happening in, in southern Bangladesh, you know, which isn't far away from where my wife's family is in Calcutta. I really care deeply about the, the threats to you know, our coastlines in, in Florida. I want to do something that protects them and, and their children and all the children and my own children. So, so we have to sort of hold those two things at the same time. How can we have freedom and autonomy and deal with this climate issue? So, I mean, I can definitely see the value of that conversation amongst peers. Mm-hmm. But often, you know, negotiations are between people with very different levels of power and wealth. And mm-hmm. so, for instance, you know, climate justice communities and, you know, big utilities or big corporations. And there, there are very objective, you could say, struggles that cannot be erased. Mm-hmm. So how would how would you approach those kinds of issues, right? So where, where there is a conversation or a mm-hmm. negotiation mm-hmm. happening, but it's happening across a different Dude, kind of power. Divide. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very important. I mean, I have sort of a couple different responses to that. One is that the Martin Luther King theory of change is that you build a positive collective identity mm-hmm. and build a large enough group of people with that positive collective identity that the people power overwhelms the structural power. In a democracy, that's possible to do. And I think that that is a very important theory of change, right? I, I think there is an aspect of this which is about building a movement that has power in by virtue of its numbers and its passion and its strategic intelligence. I do think that that movement, though, has to be composed of a combination of citizens and businesses. 
So the rising up of a new business community that is able to amass wealth through industries like renewable energy is very important to the building of that social movement. And the aligning together of social justice advocates and and all other kinds of people who might be in the climate conversation with the vanguard of businesses that really could stand to grow and thrive in a context of a more thoughtful set of climate policies. That's a really important coalition. I think we want to fight, you know, business power with business power and a combination of citizen and business power. And some some organizations are trying to do that, like E2, which is the environmental entrepreneurs, like AEE, the coalition of companies that, that work in kind of the clean tech space. I think that's very important. Yeah. Did you see uh, Sheldon Whitehouse's talk here at MIT? He was uh, speaking about the only thing that could take on the fossil fuel companies' power in these negotiations is people like Alphabet, Google, Mm-hmm. Apple, yeah, and a, a all consortium whom, called TechNet. Yeah, all like, of whom yeah. want one hundred percent renewable energy yeah. to power all their gear. So I think that's an important part of the power equation. Now, I also just want to challenge this notion that there isn't power in conversations when there's power differences. So one of the things that we've seen that we just kind of have stumbled on in our work are places where, you know, sort of one-on-one conversations that sort of make their way up the power regime, right? So so just like, here's a really simple example. There was a, a woman in Washington state, she was working on municipal recycling issues and kind of waste management issues. And in the course of doing that, one of the things that she saw was that there's a lot of carpet accumulating in, in trash dumps. That was just like a particular thing. And her mom had this job where she was a, you know, mid junior level executive in a carpet company. And so she raised that question that she had that conversation with her mom uh, to say, you know, you work for this company and I'm seeing that there's this tremendous amount of waste that is happening and there's this environmental impact. And some some of those conversations got stuck, but she sort of persisted and, and then figured out ways to just have that conversation get through to the point where her mom said, you know what, let me see what I can do. And she said, you know, how did you learn about these environmental issues? And this, and, and her daughter said, well, you know, I read this great book that sort of summarizes a lot of the stuff. It's called The Ecology of Commerce by Paul Hawken. This is a great sort of book for kind of looking at this. So, so her mom took a look at the book and she said, you know, maybe if our CEO read this book, that could have an impact. And it turned out that she had kind of spent a little bit of time, you know, around the CEO's office. And she knew that the CEO had this kind of corner of his desk that he kept empty and kind of clear. So if you put something in that corner of the desk, it was more likely for for him to see it. So she kind of coordinated with some people at headquarters to put a copy of the Ecology of Commerce on, you know, this kind of clear part of the desk. And the CEO read it. That CEO was a guy named Ray Anderson. Ray Anderson sort of had an epiphany reading this book and sort of seeing that he was part of a system that was about sort of take, make, waste, a sort of linear production system. And he wanted to move towards what Paul Hawken was describing, which which in our language now we'd call circular economy. And Ray Anderson became 
probably the most important corporate evangelist for sustainable business practices in the 1990s. He galvanized many other CEOs to start thinking about sustainability, which in turn really got American businesses into a global conversation that was starting to happen around the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and some other coalitions. And that laid the groundwork for a lot of what we have right now in terms of the more progressive side of business trying to drive for sustainable development goals at the UN level, the COP process, and so on. And and you could even trace that further back of just somebody teaching that girl to think about ecological issues, right? And you don't know where those conversations are going to lead. So yes, there is a sort of power politics aspect of this. And yes, there is about building a coalition that is going to advocate for these issues. And there's a lot of conversations between children and their parents, between people that we have access to in our lives, where we don't know where those conversations are going to lead. And we don't know what halls of power we might end up being able to influence indirectly through that kind of work. It seems really important to keep those examples in mind because they have the the effect of kind of dismantling the big systemic, oh, I can't take this on. Let's be sharing those. And uh, podcast listeners, if you know of any, we'd love to hear about them. Yes. Yeah. I I appreciate that because we are really eager to gather stories um, and examples and and so on for the curriculum materials and all the other things that are associated with the book. So just to close the conversation, if there was one tool from your book Mm -hmm. that you would want our listeners to either adopt or at least reflect upon, what would that be? You know, I think it's this notion that we explored here, this idea of of the bait in the trap or what Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy call a hidden competing commitment. Just notice, you know, understand in a conversation that's getting stuck, notice what you really want to have happen and what you're committed to and what issue you care about. But then notice what else you're quietly committed to. You're sort of got the hidden competing commitment, the bait in the trap. Are you looking to be right and make the other person wrong? Are you looking to be righteous in your own goals? Are you looking to be certain and to stay in the certainty of your own perspective? Are you looking to stay safe, keeping your own views from being challenged and avoiding kind of the discomfort that you fear might occur in these conversations? Notice those commitments. And the thing is, you're, not, you're never going to let those go unless there's something that you want more than being right, righteous, certain, and safe. So that reflection of really, what am I trying to accomplish here? And can I loosen my grip on that bait and walk out of the trap? If we can do that individually and collectively, then I think we can harness the power of conversation. And I think we can really move forward on on climate and the other critical issues of our time. Sounds great. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Cool. Thank you, Jason. So, Kurt, the power of conversations. What do you think? Well, you know, I've, I've always believed that there's a, there's a lot of work that everybody in the climate movement needs to do on this topic because uh, it brings up some of our toughest sort of personal spots when we get into these hard conversations. Yeah, and I think the work that Jason has done with, with this book and, and his research overall, I think has a lot to offer. How about for you? I would say that I have an internal conversation in my head. You know, one part of me says, yes, I want to have those tough conversations. Another part of me says, I'm right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a leap you got to take that the other people that are around that proverbial table have as much right to be there as you do, even if you don't agree with them. And that, that can be a tough one for people to get over sometimes. 
So if you have any of those hard conversations that you would like to share with us, reach out on Twitter, on Facebook, email us at climatex at mit.edu or comment on this podcast. Yeah, and if you are subscribing to the podcast, please don't forget to rate us as it helps us a lot. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.